to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I'm going to be starting a new series this week of episodes surrounding Romans chapter 8. The letter of Paul to the church in Rome is obviously a foundational text for the Christian church, but it's also a personal favorite of mine, and chapter 8 specifically is my favorite chapter, I think, in the entire Bible. I love every word that is said here. Uh, I'm challenged by it. I'm convicted by it. And I feel like it is something that is, at times, very difficult to understand. But the more you dig in, the more beautiful the truth becomes that's being communicated. So I'm going to start this series with just a discussion um, by myself of the first 11 verses in that chapter. And after that, I'm going to be bringing some friends in and some guests and some new folks and some folks you've heard from before to talk about different passages throughout this chapter. This is going to take us, I think, um, into the about the end of January. And from there, We'll pick somewhere else to focus. I don't think it would make for a very good podcast, but what I really want to do is just read this chapter over and over and over again, um, start to finish. Uh, maybe just read the entire letter to the Romans uh, from start to finish. Um, I don't think that that would be a terribly um, entertaining listen. But I think there's a lot that's said here that I can't really... Uh, explain any better than Paul is doing himself. There are parts of the theology that Paul is constructing in this letter that are really difficult to understand. There's also parts that seem really easy to understand that are super easy to uh, take out of context and misuse and misquote. And like I said in the last episode, I really love getting deeper into passages like that because it's so often we hear these phrases sort of tossed back and forth and um, oftentimes the people that are using them don't even really know what they mean. Not that I would say that I know the truth of the scripture. I don't know that anybody really does except for those that were living at the time who interacted with these letters in real time. So rather than reading the whole thing start to finish, Romans 8, I am going to read these 11 verses, uh, verses 1 through 11, in both the ESV and in the David Bentley Hart New New Testament translation. And we can jump off from there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, 
he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, who also will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And now again in the David Bentley Hart translation. So now, no condemnation for those in the Anointed One, Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in the Anointed One, Jesus, freed you from the law of sin and death. For the thing that is impossible for the law, in which it was weak on account of the flesh, God, having sent his own Son in a semblance of the flesh of sin, also, as regards sin, condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the law's just ordinance might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who exist according to the flesh incline the mind to the things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mental inclination of the flesh is death, but the mental inclination of the Spirit is life and peace. Hence, the mental inclination of the flesh is enmity to God, for it is not subordinated to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. For those existing in flesh cannot be pleasing to God, but you are not in flesh, but rather in spirit, since God's spirit dwells in you. But if one does not have the spirit of the anointed, this one is not his. But if the anointed one is in you, the body is dead on account of sin, and yet the spirit is life on account of uprightness. But if the spirit of the one who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised the anointed one Jesus from the dead will also make your mortal bodies live through the indwelling of his spirit in you. It's a long passage. Okay, I get that might seem weird for me to read that long of a section of text in two different translations right up front at the beginning of an episode. Why I did it was because I needed you to understand, like I needed to learn when I dug into this, how different the words are in different translations. It's really incredible where different translations take these particular verses. Really interesting, especially that the King James Version and the New King James that followed add, essentially add a line in this first verse 
that is really not present in most other scholarly translations. The New King James and the King James read something like, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What that adds there is like a clause in the very first verse that uh, the NU text or uh, the uh, Nestle Allen Greek New Testament and United Bible Scholars Society's uh, New Testament, which is the NU text, omits that phrase, and that's where a lot of the other translations that we see shorten that line. So it's believed then to be in, as you saw it in David Bentley Hart's translation, which is typically a, a better, uh, truer translation of the Greek manuscripts that there are, uh, that, that that line doesn't really belong in that first verse. No, it, the line is actually included elsewhere in the verses, so it doesn't really need to be right there in the first verse. So I always wonder why when I see translational differences like that, what would the motivation be behind someone changing a line in that way? I won't go so far as to say that there is an ulterior motive or something like that, but I think it's really important for us to keep these things in mind when we read the different translations. I think the problem with this implication being in the very first verse rather than worked into the logic of Paul's thoughts later on is that it implies that if you are in Christ Jesus, you do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, we sin. We all do, and we're not going to stop. Stephen Armstrong, uh, who has who had a great uh, ministry called the Verse by Verse Ministry, um, you can find a ton of his sermons online. A very, very wise, biblical mind. Can't speak to him as a person. Don't really know that much about him in that regard, but I know that his teachings are really, really helpful. If you um, want to learn a bit more about these texts in a more churchified setting rather than like an academic setting, uh, you can look him up. But he has a series on Romans, and in his sermon, his teaching on chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, he had this great line that just it struck me, and I had to kind of go back and rewind it and re-listen to it three times, because he was trying to get this point across, that your classification or your sanctification, what makes you in Christ Jesus, is not your uh, tendency to walk in the Spirit or walk in the flesh. We all walk in the flesh. What we do is in the flesh because we all do sin. And Armstrong says, you sin just as much as an unbeliever does in some contexts. The difference is they don't mind it and you do. That's the major difference. And that is an idea, a notion that I think David Bentley Hart's translation gets across really well. This idea that one is oriented in their mind towards the Spirit, 
that they keep their mind fixated on the Spirit. That is what makes you in Christ, is having that orientation towards Christ, having that orientation towards God, not that your behavior is perfected uh, once, that once you believe you no longer sin. Anyone that teaches something like that is a liar. No one is perfect, and we all continue to sin. So in verse 3, we see God has, what God has done, uh, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's in the ESV. I find this phrase, condemned sin in the flesh, really, really fascinating. The law could not save us because the flesh is weak, but God could and did save us through Jesus by condemning sin in the flesh. So let's talk about condemn, what that word condemn is. Katakrino is the, the Greek there. And if you're listening closely or, or uh, you just know Greek, you'll know that the root word for that, as I discussed in the last episode, is krino, which is judgment, to judge. So we see that use of condemn in the first verse of the chapter as well. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus in that same form. There's another different, subtly different meaning to that word that I think is important to point out. It can also mean to damn or to sentence. And if we think about what sentencing means in our, you know, in, in the sort of mind's eye that we have where we imagine what words look like as they're acted out, a sentencing to me is like an imprisonment. So, it's not just that God has condemned sin in the flesh, that when flesh is sinful, God condemns it, but he too condemns sin into the flesh, that sin is condemned to the flesh and it's stuck there. It's imprisoned there. Sin can no longer go outside of the bounds of the flesh. We, as God's creation and God's children— and those with that anointing, those that are sanctified because we know God and because we are his children, we are not bound by the flesh, but sin is still bound by the flesh, which I think is a really fascinating distinction to make. But we do not walk according to the Spirit at all times. That's why we need Jesus. The sins we commit are in our flesh, not our spirit. When we are judged by God, we are no longer condemned by our sin, but rather through Christ we are justified, and through faith we are sanctified. Eternal life is a gift given to us. A conditional gift? Maybe. Depends on your view of salvation. But a gift. We did not earn it. It was given to us through that grace, not because we did perfectly, because we never do perfectly. While we were busy getting down in the dirt with our sin, doing our thing, making our mistakes like we always do, God was busy sending the Son in the flesh to live perfectly and die sacrificially. 
that phrase down in the dirt always <laughs> kind of made me chuckle because I was thinking about Andrew Murray. He, he always refers to himself and other sinners as worm. It's not a great way to build self-confidence, but in the great perspective of how we as individuals <laughs> are in scale to the great creator, we are, I think, a worm. So when Jesus died sacrificially, or depending on your view of atonement, dying vicariously, or dying laboriously, or dying as a payment for us, we, unable to stop sinning, are still pleasing to God. And we see that in verse 8. Verse 8 in the ESV says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's only through what Jesus did that we can be pleasing to God. And not only through that, but through our fixing our minds towards the Christ, fixing our minds towards God, because our behavior is justified, our mistakes are justified, our sins are justified, so now our souls, the eternal us, the life that God has breathed into us, not bound by the flesh, is pleasing to God through Christ. Because of what Christ did, we are not in flesh or in sin, but instead we are in Christ. I've talked a lot about this phrase, in Christ, on the podcast, and it fascinates me because Paul uses it a lot, and it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. It still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It makes more sense now that I've read more of what Paul has written and more of what other people have written about what Paul has written. The idea of it makes a little more sense, but the uh, the language kind of nerded me, wanted to go from an etymology standpoint. What could the phrase mean? Is there some other meaning of in Christ from the Greek that we're not noticing? Well, in Christ means in Christ. Uh, the Greek means in. It's not super helpful here. To be in Christ, and we see that across translations, there are uh, more common English or modern English translations that wrestle with this passage, uh, really all of Romans, and fail utterly at it. They're really not good at trying to modernize these concepts because the concepts themselves aren't really bound by time, but they are extremely difficult to understand to someone who is not acquainted with the ideas. When I thumb through different translations in preparation for these episodes, I always look through some of the more scholarly translations, and I look through some of the more modern English translations, and I was looking at the J.B. Phillips New Testament and the Eugene Peterson message and their versions of these verses, I'm sorry to say, are kind of atrocious. I couldn't get through them in any way that it made sense to me in the way that I'm reading this as clearly as it feels now to me in the ESV or in the NKJV or the RSV, NRSV, the uh, 
David Bentley Hart, New Testament, they all use this phrase, in Christ. This is not like a quirk of one, one translation. So to be in Christ, we are enveloped in his perfect love. And Christ, as the God and the man, the bridge between the God spirit and the man flesh, Christ takes us into him, and we are therefore made eternal through faith in him and made pleasing to God. It's like a cloak of holiness that Christ wraps around us. It sounds kind of silly to think of it like a, like a nice warm blanket, but it, it really truly is that through faith, we have that shield, that armor, or that warm blanket that Christ has wrapped around us. That sanctification is a blanket that Christ has wrapped around us because our flesh has proven to be weak. We needed what Christ did by being that bridge between God and man. We needed that in order to be in him. In verses 9 and 10, going back, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Again, it's easy to get lost in the language there. Let's go back to David Bentley Hart. But you are not in flesh, but rather in spirit, since God's Spirit dwells in you. But if one does not have the spirit of the anointed, this one is not his. But if the anointed is in you, the body is dead on account of sin, and yet the spirit is life on account of uprightness. Notice, not perfection, uprightness, righteousness. Sometimes when we talk about the spirit or the soul, it's, it's hard to pin down what that looks like or how it acts in us or how it is in us. The easiest way for me to think about it is to literally think about God breathing life into Adam in the creation of the first man. Our very existence, our very life, our breath, our mind, the explosions of synapses that go off in our brain, our emotion, all of that is God-breathed in us. So in that way, we all have that Spirit of God in one way or another. But these verses in 9 and 10 say, we are not our sin. They're saying the sin that is condemned in our flesh is aside from what we are. We are in the Spirit. Remember that sin that we commit, that we continue to commit, that we try not to commit. That sin is condemned to our flesh, but we are in spirit, since God's spirit dwells in us. In the next few verses, there's a turn, and there's an if, and it's a pretty big and scary if. So I do want to pull up one common English translation that I think 
did this pretty well. It's because it usually splices in different phrases into a better and more understandable translation rather than trying to rewrite the whole thing. And that's the voice, which I don't think I've used on the show in a little while. Here the voice says, But you do not live in the flesh, you live in the Spirit, assuming, of course, that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. The truth is that anyone who does not have the Spirit of the Anointed living within does not belong to God. If the Anointed One lives within you, even though the body is as good as dead because of the effects of sin, the Spirit is infusing you with life now that you are right with God. And I'll go on to 11. If the spirit of the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, then you can be sure that he who raised him will cast the light of life into your mortal bodies through the life-giving power of the spirit residing in you. The captions they have interspersed into the text in the voice can be helpful sometimes. This one says, The power of sin and death has been eclipsed by the power of the spirit. The Spirit breathes life into our mortal, sin-infested bodies, thanks to what Jesus has done for us. By sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, God judges sin finally and completely. The sins of the world are concentrated and condemned in the flesh of Jesus as He hangs on the cross. So now, there is no condemnation remaining for those who have entered into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So how do we know if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us? What does it mean if if that spirit dwells in us? How would we know? Well, let's think about who we are. We're God's creation. We're, we're loved by God. And we're tasked to keep God's creation, to watch over the earth, And we learned, not just in this chapter and other parts of Romans, but throughout the entire New Testament, that we are justified through the death of Christ. So we are beloved despite our failures, our sin, or our evil. So what do we do? We believe, we love one another, and we literally just try. It sounds silly. What does it mean to have your mind set on the Spirit? What does it mean to have yourself oriented towards Christ? Well, faith begets a feeling of guilt when we sin. Going back to that Stephen Armstrong quote, he said the difference between someone who is in Christ and someone who's not in Christ is not that they don't sin. It's that they feel bad about it. So we feel that feeling of guilt when we sin, not because we're condemned by that sin, but because we know we can and should do better. God knows what we're capable of, good and bad. We know that love begets love and good begets good. We will never be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. As much as we want to be, as much as we plead to be sometimes, We will never be perfect, but we can listen to the still soft voice of God telling us in our feelings of guilt or shame that he still loves us, that we can do better, and next time we will. This week's poem is by Julia Alvarez. 
The earth is just too big, too beautiful. I like it small through a window, catching the light at the day's end. I prefer poems haiku size, a pair of binoculars through which I see one blue bird at a time, the pink bib at its throat, the lacquered claws curled upon an apple bough, in the fruit just setting on a green minuscule globe in whose meat I can taste Adam and Eve, the whole sad history of our human grief. See what I mean? Take one small thing in hand, open it up, and there's another door, and another, long corridor of views into the heart of darkness or of light. There's no such thing as a small portion once you bite in and savor the flavors. If truth is in the details, I'm the Pope of the particular, the Imam of mites, a god in the minus numbers, a worm purling the soil with the teensy bits. I take in and deliver, laboring on my two-inch by two-inch ivory life. Friends worry I'm missing the big picture, but I can hear a chorus in one voice. And just this morning from my sturdy chair, I watched a master bluebird build Versailles in Maple's cubbyhole. By the compost bin, I've got an ant hill of the pyramids. My lot's to be nibbler at life's feast. Bit by bit, I'll devour all of it. Thanks, everybody. you